Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode number 20 of the Tax Security Podcast, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco technical assistance security teams. So this is episode number 20, um, and we wanted to do something a bit different for this episode, a bit more conversational. So what we have is the regular... Uh, crew here in the studio and we're going to invite members from the RTP firewall team here in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina to come down and talk about some of the cases that they saw this week, some of the problems that um, they worked with customers to get resolved. We've got Rama Darba, Justin Betts, and Mike Robertson. First let's go around the room for our regular panel. Uh, we've got Magnus Mortensen. Howdy Jay, how you doing? Pretty good. We've got David White. Hey Jay, and uh, as some of our listeners noticed, I wasn't here at the last episode because I was uh, you were giving a the presentation, and as they say, the show must go on. But you know, we saw some nice comments from some of our listeners actually noticing that I was gone. So, you know, may- maybe I have one fan out there. I too. think uh, the comment said that a podcast episode without Dave is like Christmas without Santa. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a special place in all of our hearts. That's right. We've also got Blaine Dreyer. How's it going, Blaine? Hey, everybody. Okay, our first guest is Rama Darba, a good friend on the Firewall team. Tell us about. Um, how long have you been with ATTAC and uh, how things are going for you? Yeah, so um, I've been with the uh, Firewall TAC team for three and a half years, and that's my entire tenure at uh, Cisco. And um, it's been going very well. I know you recently passed your CCIE. You must be happy about that. Oh, yeah, you know, it's... it's uh, Lots of free time now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's not an easy test to pass, and you put in a lot of hours. But, um, yeah, I got it about three months back, and I uh, don't know what to do with my time. So do you have an interesting case from this week that you want to talk about? So, um, yeah... Th- I had a really interesting case this week where um, I had a customer who basically opened up a case because he has a monitoring tool that basically told him that the ASA's uh, outside interface was uh, oversubscribed and it was dropping packets. Um, He was basically pulling the ASA SNMP, right, to manage it, and he saw that the overruns counter on only the outside interface was uh, increasing gradually during business hours. So what does it mean if the overrun counter is incrementing on the uh, ASA? So the overrun counter uh, indicates that when we pull a packet off the wire, the physical um, NIC, it has a receive ring. And if the receive ring is full and there's no place to store the packet at the device driver level, then we'll increment the overrun counter and that packet gets dropped. Yeah, and so it was really interesting because um, at this point he knew he had a problem, but he didn't really know how to proceed from here, right? And um, like I said before, it's a very common problem. You'll see some sort of counter and then it won't look right. And then... Um, you want to know what's causing this. So he opened up the TAC case, and at that so, point... So how frequently was the counter going up? Right, so that was one of the big things that we had to narrow down. Um, in this case, uh, there's always uh, a host of questions we ask to kind of um, lay a foundation for um, when a device is oversubscribed. In our uh, case, I tried to um, work with him to understand um, how often these uh, numbers, the overruns were increasing, and when they were increasing. And we, after we discussed this, uh, we framed it so that effectively the overruns seemed to only increase during business hours, right? And um, they seemed to increase uh, in small bursts um, every 15 or 10 minutes. So in small bursts, you mean a couple or uh, no? It was it was a like a thousand. F- yeah, it was a few hundred overruns um, every 15 minutes or so. At that point, we had a much better idea of where to look and how to look at it. So then at, once we discussed that, then the key is to correlate what uh, is occurring on the ASA to cause these overruns. I knew from, you know, from taking cases and having been on the team for a while that um, one thing that can cause overruns is uh, the CPU hogs. 
And uh, CPU hogs are basically when the CPU is being used by a process, and that process will not yield the CPU to allow anything else to um, use a CPU to um, execute its task. Right. So, and back in the PIC stage, we didn't have this capability of notifying an administrator when the CPU has been consecutively consumed by a single process for too long. And so that was added on the ASA, where what we did by default was you have these receive rings on the ASA for uh, traffic coming in off the NIC, and then the CPU goes and pulls each of the NICs and says, is there any packets in the receive ring? If so, I'm going to pull it off the receive ring and store it in a buffer. And so what we did is we calculated how deep each of the receive rings were for each interface and each platform and how how fast the CPU was, and then tune the CPU threshold such that you'll get the uh, syslog message saying that you received a CPU hog if it if this if the um, process hogs the CPU longer than the threshold, which that threshold is what the minimum amount of time is that would cause the receive ring to be full. And usually, you know, sometimes we see CPU hogs that are like you know 10 milliseconds, 20 milliseconds, and that's maybe not so big a deal. But if you see hogs that are greater than you know 100 or 200 milliseconds, that's an issue because during that time, you know, the main CPU isn't servicing the receive rings, and you could have packet drops, which is, I guess, what you saw in this case. Right, and we, we got a little bit lucky in the situation um, that the issue wasn't completely random. For the eight hours that the uh, that the ASA was during business, um, overruns would increase over every hour. So what we ended up doing is um, I, I provided him a series of outputs to gather, right, um, which consisted of show clock, show CPU, um, show process CPU hog, and show interface detail. And we gathered those outputs every minute for one hour. Basically, he just used an SSH uh, connection and some script that would log into the ASA via SSH and then run these commands every minute. And then we would correlate that with this monitoring tool, which would send him an email uh, whenever it saw the overruns counter increase. Did so, he write that script himself? Um, yeah, actually. I think he, uh, I just gave him the outputs, and he said that he already had a tool that allowed him to write the script. I think it was just a Linux uh, uh, script. Ex- uh, yeah, yeah expect uh, script. a lot of people end up using expect as a pretty simple platform yeah. for that. Yeah, no, in the past, I've used Perl to get this done. So it doesn't, you know, you could use anything that logs in via CLI um, in order to do this. Um, there's a lot of scripts online that you can just um, pull and cater to your needs. That reminds me of auto-expect, which I'll just plug here. You can just type auto-expect on a Linux CLI or Unix as well, and then um, give the name of the script, and then it'll capture everything you type, and then when you exit, by um, you say like exit, and then it'll save that script file, and then if you run that script file immediately afterwards, it'll just rerun everything you did, so you don't have to go through the process of manually coding the script. Just thought I'd throw that up. Shameless plug. (laughs) Well, it works well. Um, I I think the key here is um, the reason this case was... um, but we were able to progress so quickly and so effectively through it, especially for such a complicated problem as uh, device oversubscription, is because um, this customer had such a uh, put a lot of time and investment into um, making sure that he can monitor his network effectively. And I think that was really important, and it really made um, troubleshooting this case so much easier um, because we could look at everything that we wanted to look at and get the trends that we needed to get in order to tr- um, isolate the root cause. So anyway, um, what we ended up doing is after he got that information, he got uh, the output of show CPU hog and uh, show um, uh, show interface detail and show clock every um, uh, minute for an hour. And then he provided me that output in nicely labeled um, text, flat text files um, with each time. And then what I did is uh, I correlated that with the um, emails he got from his uh, um, monitoring uh, service and after we got that output, it was just a matter of um, seeing whether we saw CPU hogs at the time 
of the uh, uh, at the time of the actual overrun increase, right? And um, what we did find is actually that um, the CPU hog there was one process that was being called every time that uh, the overruns would increase. Right, and we were able to isolate it down to that process. Now, ironically, that process was the SNMP process, which was his uh, monitoring tool itself. Mm, right? Yeah. So it was kind of a Cache 22 situation, but um, uh, we were able to cater his solution to uh, fix it. So we actually, once we had a really strong feeling that you know it's the SNMP process that is hogging the CPU, and uh, because of that, the CPU can't process the traffic coming in on the NICs. That's what was causing the overruns. We told him, all right, so temporarily just turn off the uh, um, SNMP process just for an hour or two hours so that we can verify that the overruns aren't increasing anymore. He went ahead and he um, did that. And uh, the great thing was then um, we were able to confirm that it was truly the SNMP process. Um, then we worked together to figure out, you know, um, and isolate and cater his SNMP um, MIBs and OIDs that he was polling so that um, we wouldn't have these um, CPU hogs on the ASA anymore. So the solution was to not, you know, run that particular SNMP get or whatever it was that was you know misconfigured or whatever that was causing the hog. Right. It seemed like he um he Did was he walk the like yeah walk he the was tree. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he was walking yes. a really really huge um uh, mib, yeah. right? And a lot of um in you know a lot of OIDs that may or may not have been used by the ASA at the time. Yeah, because we'll report back like if you walk the whole tree, you'll get back all the translations, all the connections, that sort of thing. Right. And yeah, it's like sh running show tech over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little bit insane. So yeah, and so I worked with him to kind of understand what he was actually pulling for, what he wanted to view, and um, what he didn't need to view and then we catered his solution down so that it's only the relevant information right so it's more streamlined less traffic on the network for for him from the SNMP polling because it was polling every minute as well as less strain on the ASA altogether right and um, after that it, it cleaned up his issue and he was very happy with the solution oh, pretty cool yeah so in, in those oversubscription cases you mentioned that they're challenging cases right and there's really only two real ways of trying to go about solving them you know determining root cause and like you said the, the first is okay, if, if the receiving's full, we're having oversubscription, then why is it full? You know, and the first guess is either the blocks are full or the CPU isn't getting enough time to go and pull the MIBs, right? The, or I'm sorry, pull the interfaces to get the packets off. The other option that it could be is if you have very large amounts of bursty traffic. So lots of packets with very small inner packet gaps that come in and they just fill up their receive ring and then you have another packet, you know, sent afterwards in that short time and we drop it there. Again, it's our inability to maybe pull the packet off the wire fast enough, but those are much more challenging to try to deduce as well because then you have to, you know, do the packet captures and look at the inner packet gap and the number of packets and the depth of the receive ring and all this other stuff and that gets really challenging. And in those cases, the only real solution is either upgrade the, um, the interface speed or implement flow control. So when we have flow control now on the 10 gig interfaces as well as uh, the single gig interfaces, so we can send a pause frame back to the sender that says pause for a second because our receiver ring is getting full before you send us some more traffic. Yeah, and it it just outlines the need for network administrators to know what traffic's on your network because you know it's like looking at a waterfall and saying where's all this water coming from. You know you got to go back and look to where it's what's the sources of the network traffic you know to understand what the ag what's causing the aggregate amount of traffic to go so high that it's um, you know causing you trouble on the interface but that's a that's a great case Rama. yeah absolutely and uh, I think the key takeaway up at this case is something that um, we as network engineers don't probably do as often as we should which is just correlation right um, correlating what information um, what 
things are happening at the same time, and especially for these oversubscription cases where it's harder to see um, exactly what's causing this problem. It's about finding trends and then isolating what behaviors occur during the same times to develop a hypothesis that can logically be assumed as your root cause. Yeah. I think another conclusion from it too is you know kudos to this network admin for you know monitoring and noticing that they were getting packet drops on the network yeah. and, and trying to find root cause because otherwise you know traffic is getting dropped but depending on how much traffic was dropped each hour you know depends on how the end user actually experiences that right you can have some packet loss in your network and depending on the protocols that no one might never ever notice but you know as things might get worse then you start getting random issues say hey i can't access this or it times out or i get a reset or whatever it is and then that becomes a much more challenging problem to actually try to figure out what's the cause of that problem. Okay, I'm getting packet loss. Now, where across my entire network am I getting packet loss? So I think, you know, really kudos go out to the network admin to say, I've got monitoring set up, and I noticed that I was getting packet loss on this specific device. Now let's go figure out why and how to fix it. Okay, next up in the studio we have Justin Betts. Justin, tell us how long you've been with Cisco. I've been with the TAC for three years now, coming up in June. And i got to say it was impressive. few weeks ago when you passed your security CCIE on the first try. Very Thanks, impressive. Jake. Wow. Congratulations. Good job. So uh, tell us about the case you had this week. Uh, this week I had an interesting FWSM case come in. Uh, the customer reported that his wireless users were unable to get out of their wireless network. Uh, the problem was because they were not getting IP addresses. It seemed like DHCP was not working. Uh, the interesting bit was that the FWSM is the DHCP relay agent for this VLAN. So the FWSM has an interface that's directly connected to those what that wireless subnet. Yep, yep, and it's looking for those DHCP offers and sending them to the to the server. And uh, that appeared to be not working correctly because DHCP itself wasn't working. Um, but what the customer had done was this was happening. It was pretty urgent. He uh, failed over to the other FWSM to t- to mitigate the symptoms, and that and that seemed to work. Uh, so after everything had settled, uh, customer went and went and opened up the TAC case. And had a pretty good timeline of events, you know, at, at like 9:40, you know, wireless users were unable to get out, unable to connect, um, you know, things of that of that sort. He went in and failed over, fixed the problem, and then went and, and, and opened up the tech case. That's great. He had that uh, detailed timeline for you. Yeah, yeah that, that's pretty helpful. Those kind of postmortems, you know, when you're kind of going in blind, it's crystal ball troubleshooting. There's not a lot you can really do. Yeah, you just yeah, they, they send in a show tech after the fact. Hey, tell me what my problem is. Yeah. <laughs> I had a problem seven weeks ago. Here's a show tech. So w- was this customer able to provide us with any additional details to help get to the root cause? Yes. Luckily, this customer um, syslogged well on the FWSM had it uh, pretty at a pretty verbose level. So we All were right. able to go back and see a lot of good information from the syslogs. So how, that's how, how big was that syslog file that you got? I'm it was interested. huge. It was a gigabyte. That's pretty good. It was giant. So how did you go about uh, filtering How'd you parse it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think I was on Windows at that time oh, no. still. Yeah, so Uh-oh. I actually split it up. A 32-bit platform, too. I'm so. sorry to hear that. Yeah, so I just split it up into smaller chunks. And I just looked through the chunks, and uh, I was able to find the one syslog file that I was able to open in, in Windows, in 32-bit Windows, and then grab through that one. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing I saw from the syslogs, uh, when I went through them right away, I like to filter by severity level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I do that. that too. I start. I search for everything with FWSM dash one, and just yeah. search. And then if nothing comes up, FWSM dash two, because that way you see the most severe stuff first. But that's just what I do. Yeah, I, I do that. But then also I filter out ones that I don't use. So crep minus v, and then the syslog mm-hmm. IDs that I know I'm not interested in. Keep filtering those out, and then you find some. So it's like that are there. cat pipe crep minus v pipe crep minus v you pipe crep minus v. Okay. <laughs> 
You can use eGrep and do them in one shot. Magnus has all sorts of weird tools to use for that. But uh, okay, anyway, <laughs> Justin, sorry, continue. So that's where I was, uh, filtering by severity level, and noticed some really unusual um, xlate creation, regular translation creation failed syslogs for IP protocol 105. Ooh, that ding, sounds ding, really ding. familiar. Yeah, that's failover. Yeah. There you go. Failover. Knew it was familiar. Interface monitoring. Okay, so those are messages sent between the two, the active and the standby IP addresses to verify interface health. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. In which case we would never, should never try to see it building a translation because it should be consumed by the interface that's receiving yeah. it. Yeah, so that was unusual to me in that it looks like the FWSM was like trying to forward it instead of process it itself as a packet to itself. It looked like it was trying to send it in. So that got me thinking um, this could be related to a translation or something. So. Um, you know, I had that syslog, and I was able to find the first occurrence of that IP protocol 105 mm -hmm. uh, translation creation syslog. And shortly before them, we started to see, uh, we found the specific syslog that indicated we had created a translation that overlapped with the FWSM's outside interface. Ooh, that's not good. So just for clarity, the you, you probably saw a translation created from the wireless interface to the outside interface, so from that's higher correct. security to lower security. and. It, most likely, it was an identity translation, and meaning that the source and destination, or the, the source address, was not translated as it went out. But that source address matched the IP address assigned to the outside interface of the FTS. Yeah, it's pretty okay. unfortunate condition, but yeah. yeah. What yeah. was the IP address? I'm it was a 192.168.2.2. Okay, so that's not as random as it, I mean, that could be the uh, his home wireless network or whatever. Yeah. So he may have statically hard-coded it. So then it's just unfortunate that that matched the exact IP yeah. and the packet was permitted by his security policy. Uh, and he had a rule to permit translations too. Yeah. That's right. That's anyway, right. so cool. he had this X-Late. So we ha he had this X-Late. Um, the issue actually reoccurred a couple hours later and he cleared it out. He cleared the translation this time because mm -hmm. I had informed him of this problem. So he was able to clear the X-Late, which confirmed that it was this overlapping translation. So it fixed this cascade of symptoms. You know, DHCP relay wasn't working. He was unable to manage the FWSM from that interface. He mm -hmm. couldn't ASDM to it, things like that. So, so yeah, in a situation like that, you know, if we end up taking a translation for an entire interface of one of our firewalls, any services to or from that interface are basically, you know, dead in the water. Well, they were going to that IP address. Yeah, anything <laughs> yeah. that's going to, you know, so you're talking about management to that or, you know, uh, even Monitoring. DHCP relay from that, I would assume, would also cause, cause that same sort of failure, right? Yeah. Yeah, so what was, what, how does that lead back to the cause of DHCP relay failing for those wireless clients? So it's probably due to the fact that we couldn't package up the, the DHCP relay packet. We couldn't source it from that FWSM's outside interface okay. because it was already used in a translation through yeah. the box. Okay, so it just never even sent them towards the DHCP relay server. Yep. Oh, cool. Okay, so what did so what did you do to mitigate the problem or keep it from happening again? Uh, the easiest thing we could do in, at that time was implement an ACL just to only allow traffic valid for that VLAN out through the FWSM because the IP address that happened to overlap wasn't really part of that IP subnet anyway. It wasn't in the scope, so. Yeah, I guess that's a good lesson to just, you know, permit traffic that you know you need to, and that will maybe help mitigate or prevent some of these other weird issues that you could have. Yeah, the other thing would be to look at his actual translation rules, right? So what allowed that translation that overlapped with the outside interface to be created in the first place, too? Well, you know, and on the FWSM, by default, you know, even if you don't have any translation specified in version 3 or later, you'll 
build an identity translation for any inside host accessing a lower security level interface, but you can use the xlate-bypass command now so that identity translations won't be created for um, packets that don't match an explicit NAT rule in version 3 or later. So that may also have just happened to mitigate the problem for him, but again, yeah. it needed yeah, to be Yeah, that comes fixed. with its own set of caveats, though, too. Yeah, this so. is kind of like a duplicate IP problem. I mean, there's not really a great way to solve it other than figuring out who that is, you know, blocking and, and mitigating the effect of it, but then you got to figure out who has the overlapping IP and, and yep. shut it down. So That's right. It's a cool case, Very Justin. Very interesting. Thanks. Cool. Thanks. All right, next up we've got Mike Robertson. How long have you been with the team, Mike? Uh, a little bit less than a year now. Okay, excellent. Tell us about your case. Uh, the case originally opened as a, as a failover case between two FWSMs. Um, the customer had a pair of FWSMs that uh, were constantly failing over. So to fix the problem and kind of stabilize his network, he shut down the secondary unit and then uh, had us um, do all of our troubleshooting on the primary unit. So, so at what point the, did the case get opened? The case was open after they had shut down the module, but they needed to provide a root cause, and they were still having uh, network degradation, so they so were still having traffic problems. What, what type of degradation were they having when they uh, called the, us? The main thing that, that sparked the case was that people on the outside couldn't get into any resources in their, in their networks. Oh, they couldn't access bad. their... <laughs> yeah, couldn't send them email, couldn't access their So it was a page. network outage. outage <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. a priority <laughs> one or a priority two case. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was definitely... Way to downplay the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it was nothing. A little dust off the shoulder. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we got we jumped on the box, and um, for some reason they were able to do a WebEx, so we, we got lucky there. Um, they had a, a, another path out to the internet that they could get us in and uh, session down to the firewall. We took a look at, we just did basic, you know, a basic health check at that point. We looked at the CPU. The CPU was a lot higher than what they thought it should be. It was around 75%. Um, they didn't have a, a very good baseline about what it should have been, but we figured that was probably pretty high for their network. Um, so we saw the high CPU, and then basically, you know, I said we just need to focus on one particular connection and identify and start troubleshooting that. So we started with our web server. So I couldn't get to it from, from my PC out on the internet. So, so you were watching, you were logged into the firewall, and you telnet it on port 80 or access it with your web browser or whatever. And what yeah. commands were you using to verify whether or not your traffic was getting there? Uh, well, we couldn't really do any changes on the firewall, so we couldn't do captures. We couldn't. Uh, Why couldn't you do changes? Uh, they, that was just their, their change management policy. So they had a change management policy that we couldn't do changes, meaning create ACLs to bind them to captures to capture traffic to verify exactly. what was getting there, but at the same time, their entire network was down. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Excellent. Change <laughs> control is all. Yeah, and I must say, we love those cases. Yeah, that's, that's always tough, but it's yeah. like solving problems with both hands tied behind. But a lot of times, I <laughs> and mean, a blindfold. It's not, you know, it's not the administrator on the phone's fault, you know. Right, yeah. He's exactly. in trouble too, right? So. Yeah. So, I mean, from, from there, we just kind of did, like I said, a basic health check. So we saw the CPU was high. And another thing we looked at was the MP blocks on the FWSM. Um, and we saw that the thresholds for those blocks had been increasing, and they were constantly increasing as we were on the phone. So explain a little bit of what the MP blocks are. I know we've touched on them in uh, past episodes, but give the listeners a quick description of what the MP blocks sure. are. Sure, yeah. So we saw, uh, so there's three NPs, three network processors in the FWSM, and we saw that uh, the thresholds, meaning there's threshold zero through through one, or zero through two, sorry. And um, if, if threshold two is being met, that means we're approaching a level that the NPs are processing packets at a rate that they can't keep up with. So threshold two means that we're approaching that limit. And so NPs are the network processors yeah. that are the custom ASICs on the FWSM, which are processing the transient traffic and traffic test into the FWSM. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then threshold one means that, you know, we're, we're dropping data packets at that point, and threshold zero would be that we're dropping control packets up to the CP. 
So um, we took a look at that and we saw that NP3 um, had pretty significant increases on those thresholds and had been increasing um, while we were on the phone. So that's where we kind of started our focus um, and, and try to identify some things that would cause NP3 thresholds to increase. So things like new con builds, um, stuff that goes up to the CP for like, you know, syslogging or access list hits, things like that. Um, and we looked at... Or loop. Yeah, yeah, loop too, yep. Um, so basically at that point, you know, I said we need to kind of focus on, on what this is because the case, like I said, had originally been open because the blades were failing over, progressed into a network outage. So I said, well, those things can kind of be related because MP3 is going to also deal with uh, the failover hello messages processing. So um, let's kind of focus on that and see what we can find. So what we found was that, again, we couldn't really do captures, but um, what we did is we, we uh, took a look at, at uh, a couple outputs. Show service policy was one of them because inspections will all get passed up to the CP for processing. So. Um, we took a look at that and we saw that the DNS inspection had a bunch of hits on it as well as drops. And as we kind of watched that, we saw hundreds of drops per second on the, on the service policy. So that was abnormal for them to see that high of a rate? For the drops, yeah, we assumed. I mean, again, they didn't really have good baselines, so they weren't really sure. They sure. were just kind of fishing for data at that point. But um, yeah, so that seemed kind of high. But, you know, again, we weren't really sure because they didn't have a baseline. So we kind of took note of that and started looking at a couple other things. Um, we also looked at the output of show NPPC, which is the program counters for all of the threads that the different network processors are juggling at any one time. Uh, so we, we took a look at the output of show NPPC and we saw that all of the threads for NP2 um, were non-zero values. They weren't stuck, meaning that they weren't stuck processing the same threads over and over, but they were constantly non-zero, so they were processing a lot of traffic. Um, so what we did was we, we dumped all those threads out uh, to a text file and had him send me those. And then we used a tool that was actually written by Justin um, uh, on our team to take that data and basically go through it and dump it out to a PCAP format so we could kind of see what traffic was being processed by those network processors at that time. Um, and we did that and we saw that, you know, more than 50% of the, of the traffic uh, was all UDP 53 traffic. So again, that would go back to the, the counters that we saw on the DNS inspection. Okay, so things are starting to come together here. Yeah, so something right. wasn't looking right. So I asked the customer, you know, we have the source and destination IPs at this point. So we said, you know, what is this host? They were all sourced from the same host, destined all to the same host, which is why we were seeing them constantly on NP2. Mm. They were constantly getting hashed to the same network processor. So I said, what are these? And basically the source IP was some server that they had sitting in their DMZ um, that was accessible from the internet, but shouldn't have been sending out that much DNS traffic. Ruh -roh. Yeah, and they didn't they didn't know what the destination was. We did a who is on it, but it was just some, you know, IP address in a in an ISP block somewhere. We didn't know what it was. Um, it was a victim is what it was. Yeah, and it was nothing that they they knew what it was. So, you know, we did you look at the uh, DNS request that it was? It wasn't actually DNS packets. That's why uh, the inspection right. was dropping it. It was on UDP 53, but it wasn't actually DNS data. Probably something trying to skirt out through ACLs or something to that Maybe nature. Maybe it was writing, yeah, yeah, it was tunneling or something. So was the, the DNS inspection dropping all the DNS packets? Was Not all of the really? packets, but it was dropping all of the ones from that host yep. for sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did its job. <laughs> yeah. And uh, th there were some other things that we used to correlate that. I mean, we, we did a diff of the show proc output and saw that, you know, fast fix up was a, a heavy hitter, as was the dispatch unit. So, uh, you know, we knew at that point it was traffic related. So 
given the fact that they weren't sure what that was and that server was uh, did have a history of being compromised, I think it was a Linux box, but it had happened before where the, that server had gotten a virus or some, something happened, happened on that before. server. before, man. The person who uses this machine loves to play those online <laughs> games and click on banners. Yeah. There so, are viruses on Linux? They click the email that they're not supposed to click on. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. We never, uh, we never got down to the nitty-gritty of what actually happened to that server, but basically all they did was, uh, you know, they, they basically pulled the cable on that cable on that on that server and, and took it off the network as soon as they did that the CPU dropped down to about five percent we stopped seeing Sweet. all those drops on the inspections and then literally as soon as they had pulled the cable on that I hit you know enter on my browser to try to load their page and it came up so uh, at that point everything kind of stabilized and everything was back up and we brought the other failover pair back or the other unit in the pair back online and it came up fine and it was stable after that so. I think some of the key things to take away from that are you know you definitely want to have a baseline of what your network normally looks like you know definitely. and uh, if you uh, you know we were talking about SNMP polling back uh, with Rama and you know if you've got the ability to baseline your network these kind of things will start to creep up and you'll notice those sort of oddities show up throughout your environment and you know baselining really kind of gives you the ability to say oh you know my web servers are now down, and this one port on this one switch is seeing a packet rate that is horrific. You know, yes. maybe there's something strange going something on. Something like NetFlow, if this was already enabled on there, it would have been just great. I mean, yeah. you could have gone to your NetFlow monitoring and said, "Look, you know, this problem started yesterday. Look at that giant spike of DNS traffic from this compromised server. You know, yep. what what is that, right?" Uh, but that's cool. So you, you used a variety of tools on the FWSM to track that down. And yep. but explain why that traffic from that host. Um, could have caused the failover to have trouble. I mean, what was that about? Yeah, what we assumed there was that just the rate of packets that NP3 was having to process and, and push up to the control point for inspection was just totally hammering the network processors to the point where we couldn't deal with the failover hello packets that were coming back and forth. So, so it had trouble maybe sending or receiving them, and then this, yeah. the failover finite state machines thought that the other one was down or something. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you're getting the threshold, uh, threshold zero drops, right, so we're dropping the control, control frames, and failover is sent from the control point down through NP3 and then out NP1, you know, or two to the peer. So if you're dropping those frames going to MP3 or MP3 yeah. is dropping those frames, it's never going to get sent to the peer. And same on the reception of those frames. So once that happens, you know, failover is out the window if you can't get enough of those packets in. And one question that some people have when we discuss these problems is, how could just one PC take down my firewall service module? Well, you know, at this point... PCs have gig NICs and, you know, multi-core CPUs, and they can generate a lot of network traffic, much more than they could five, ten years ago. And so that much traffic that was being treated specially by the firewall service module as DNS traffic and being punted out of the fast path NPs all the way up to the main control point, the main CPU of the firewall, it was sort of a worst-case scenario, I guess, as far as yeah. what the traffic looked like and what the firewall was configured to do with the traffic. But... Yeah, it wouldn't have been something that they could have prevented, like, just with ACLs. Obviously, they want DNS requests to go out through their network, so... Um, well, they could have blocked DNS to that destination, right? Or they could have blocked it from that source with ACLs. Or they could have specifically permitted UDP uh, DNS traffic to their DNS servers and not to yeah. other places. Yeah. That would have done it. But so. the packets still, those fat packets would still made it up to MP3 where the ACL check is done. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a pretty cool one. Good. Thanks, Thanks guys. Okay, uh, next up, Dave, you've got one um, you said you wanted to talk about. Sure. So this case uh, came in, I don't know, probably worked on a month or so ago um, on the ASA, and it actually didn't come to me. One of the engineers on the firewall team had been working on it for a while and hadn't been making much progress on it. So I kind of was looking through the backlogs at, you know, the list of cases, and this one was, was relatively old. 
and they hadn't really come to a solution. And what really triggered my interest was uh, the customer had reported a vulnerability on the ASA. And so that's really why I was kind of interested in looking in. You know, we really want to really jump onto those. Well, the, the description that customer claimed was is that they were doing a PCI audit and uh, they were doing a Qualys scan. So a Qualys scan, um, scanner goes out and tries to look at vulnerabilities and it reported a vulnerability on our uh, ASA 5520s running 821 whereby they were sending it uh, a small ICMP packet through the box and that uh, that the when the packet went through we had to pad the packet and the padding wasn't all zeros but instead was coming back with uh, with four bytes of data and, oh, interesting and so in that specific vulnerability uh, the devices that were susceptible to that vulnerability were leaking packet buffer data from previous packets so if you sent Ooh. enough of these frames you through you gleam the that's right you can you could start grabbing that wow. you know bytes at the end of the stream the padding put it back together and coalesce it and then you know, see other data that's traversing through the box at the same time, right? At least bits and pieces of it. So if you send it at cool. a high enough rate, you can get a decent amount. But that's the that's what Qualsys reported as the vulnerability, right? That's Not necessarily, okay. That, that's what the customer reported the vulnerability by using the Qualys scanner um, to do this uh, PCI compliance audit. So did it report back that the firewall had this vulnerability? Yes. Yep. So th- that interested me, especially since the fact that, you know, I-, I knew that ASA possibly couldn't be causing this problem at all. Um, so I wanted to look into this. And so, you know, what do we do, right? The first thing we do is we put a packet capture on the ASA to capture the packets. And uh, I-, I also happen to have a Qualys scanner here in the lab, um, part of our NAC framework solution that I thought, oh, I haven't used that in a while. I'll get to go play with my Qualys scanner. <laughs> but then I figured, well, let me just test it out with an ICMP. <laughs> First, I can uh, you know, create any size ICMP that I wanted and, and send it through, right? So traditional ICMP, sending it through, um, obviously you've got Ethernet frame. You, you have a certain minimum size frame that you have to have 64 bytes, right? And if it's the packet's less than that, then it's going to buffer it. Um, and so you know, doing standard ICMP pings through it, I didn't see a problem. But then I started looking at what the customer setup was. And what they had is they had the ASA was connected to a Cisco switch, uh, which you know, had a specific line card in it. Uh, and then that was connected to you know, a series of other devices and then to the Qualys scanner. And I said, well, you know, I really don't think it's the ASA. I think maybe you know, there could be something going on with a line card. So I wanted to get the right line card in my recreate setup. So I got the line card in my setup and tested again and still couldn't reproduce the issue. So then I looked at the configuration a little bit more and noticed, you know, what I was trying to determine where the packet was ingressing into that switch and where it was egressing out of the switch towards the ASA. And what was happening is on one side of the switch, they were doing trunking and on the other side of the switch, they weren't right. And Uh, so with trunking, we add a four byte um, mm -hmm. header that specifies what the VLAN tag is, right? So when the packet came in, it had the four-byte header on it, but when it sent it to the ASA, it stripped the four-byte header off, which meant that it needed to pad that frame with an additional... The switch did. The switch did. needed to pad that frame with an additional four bytes of data. Mm. So typically, we should use all zeros to pad it. In this case, we, you know, there was actually some non-zero value in there. So now the question became, you know, one, I was able to reproduce it using this effect, but two is, you know, what was causing... Um, you know, where was the four bytes coming from specifically? And, and what was it? So then I looked and I said, well, you know, I, I still really don't believe that it's 
uh, packet buffer leaking data, data. because, you know, one, it, it, that's a common vulnerability that we knew about back, I don't know, in the early 2000, 2001, 2002 range. And, you know, we went through the products and made sure we weren't vulnerable. So, you know, you have some hunches that, you know, I just don't think that it's going to be vulnerable. And even though this was a line card that was an extremely old <laughs> line card for the for that switch, it was a 6500, it was a 6148G Ouch. line card. Yeah, so oh, it's old. a long time ago. So, I mean, there's still suspicion that it could be leaking data, but I just didn't think so. So then what I did is, you know, being able to reproduce the issue and keep taking captures in Wireshark, what I did was I picked this particular packet out of Wireshark, and then I grabbed or saved the byte stream of that packet payload into hex and then I looked at it and saw that you know again the last four bytes were appended to it but then I decided to run a CRC check on the actual byte stream so when I ran the CRC check I noticed that the CRC value was actually that four bytes of oh, data nice. but in reverse network order right so it was actually mm -hmm. so it wasn't the actual match but when you you know change the ordering of it the network order it actually was a match and so I was able to verify that on multiple different packets and then could prove to the customer that we weren't leaking any packet data but rather it was just the CRC over that packet that was getting appended to the end of the frame as how'd you, how'd you do the CRC cool. check yeah so I, I ran a Unix uh, utility that you can pass it a byte stream of data or a you know a stream of data and uh, it would run the CRC check on it that's pretty cool. smarty so were, were any other ports on that switch connected, or, I mean, if we were leaking packet buffers and data from other uh, other streams into this stream, that would be a major problem. Uh, absolutely, it would be. But in this case, we weren't leaking any packet buffer, right? The the padding, of the non-zero padding was actually just the CRC value from of, that, from that packet. particular packet. Correct. Cool. cool. Just non-zero, but completely benign. Yes. So basically, I mean, from a scanning perspective, that would be a false positive. So I think, uh, you know, this to me was an interesting case because you really had to kind of have an idea of, you know, what was going on. The customer was saying, hey, my tool is reporting a vulnerability, but then you had to have some way of correlating that and validating, was it really a vulnerability? You know, most people And we do get quite a few of those cases when the yeah, audits get, come along. We get them a lot of time, um, you know, uh, more often with just scans that, hey, these ports are open on my firewall. This thing reports these ports are open where... What does that mean? You know, yeah, that uh, there's no ACL permitting it. So, you know, we know for sure that it's not open. We can do packet captures and prove it. But, you know, trying to explain all these false positives that these scanners and stuff report is challenging. In this case, I think it was much more challenging because... You know, when you reproduced it, the actual byte data was there in the packet. So now it was, how do you correlate what is that byte data? Is it coming from leaked packet buffer or is it coming from something else? And that was a little bit Did of a Did it challenge. just catch your eye? that Because it was in reverse byte order. So you couldn't have done like a find in exactly. a page yeah. or a find in stream. <laughs> right. It was challenging. Um, it was basically, you know, experience and intuition, right? So I just knew that... You know, it wasn't the switch leaking that packet buffer. So I had to, you know, where could it be coming from? And once I figured out that, you know, we were padding it because of we were stripping the Ethernet header off, you know, where could we be getting this byte data from? And the logical conclusion was possibly the the CRC, right? And the other thing is that there's always CRCs on the Ethernet frames, but most tools like Wireshark and stuff, you can't actually see the CRC because they strip that off. They don't show it, right? So I said, well, I don't know what it is, but I can calculate it. So then it was, you know, exporting that packet out, capturing what that byte stream was, running a CRC on it. And then my initial look was, oh, it didn't match. But then I said, well, wait a second, right? <laughs> if I change the ordering of them, absolutely it sure does match, right? So it, it was very interesting. 
And I, I love those kind of scanner cases. I think one of my most favorite ones was uh, one of the folks here on our team had a customer who said, uh, uh, my scanner reports that your FWSM is running Windows XP. Can you please prove this? <laughs> oh, prove it's not running yeah, Windows XP. prove that you are not running Windows XP. I like XP. the one that says, we need a signed document. Yeah. It's not running we need Windows a signed document that we know that this is not running XP Service Pack 2. Thank you. We promise? <laughs> <laughs> well, that does it for this episode number 20 of the Tax Security Show. Uh, this was a different kind of episode, and we wanted to try one that was more conversational and talk more about the kind of cases that we're seeing in the tax. So please drop us a line and let us know what you think if you want us to do more episodes of this type, you know, where we talk to different engineers about what they're seeing, or if you want us to cover other topics um, that we haven't covered already. Uh, our email address is securityshow at cisco.com, and our website at www.cisco.com slash go slash podcast. And as always, you can visit our home on the uh, Cisco support community at supportforums.cisco.com and click on the firewalling section to um, see our episode listing. And one more thing to mention is Cisco Live 2011 is going to be coming up in July and we're going to be out there and specifically we're going to be taping a live episode of the Tax Security Podcast during the uh, lunch session uh, the table topic session, uh, session in the world of solutions. So on Tuesday uh, stop by between w 11 and 12.30 to um, talk with us, come by, say hi, sit down, put on some headphones, and tell us about some of the problems that you're seeing or tell us about your, your network topology, and um, we can answer some questions for you and share that with uh, other subscribers to the podcast. Also, Blaine, uh, you're going to be actually doing some presentations. Tell us about uh, the presentation that you're a part of. Yeah, so David, uh, UJ, and our colleague Alashandre and I will be doing a TechSec 2020, where we're going to cover a lot of the features, functionality, capabilities of the ASA, and uh, I'll be doing some specifics on the IPS module that fits inside the ASA. So that should be really cool. It happens from uh, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Sunday. And give us the number again, the session ID. TechSec 2020. Okay, and uh, David, why don't you tell us uh, about the lab that you and I are putting together? So this year we're going to host two different labs on Monday. Uh, the first lab is really hands-on troubleshooting with the ASA version 8.2 and lower, and that's LTR SEC 3020. And uh, you're going to get uh, four hours of hands-on experience uh, of your own pod uh, of a lab, and we're going to walk you through, I think, a series of five labs that present you with a problem and that you have 20 minutes for each one to solve and with some instruction and, uh, instruction and some additional information or help uh, from us. The other class is LTRSEC 3021, and it's essentially the same class, but on version 8.3 and higher, so it's really on version 8.4. And uh, the labs are essentially the same, but the troubleshooting scenarios are going to be a little bit different because you have the new NAT model. Okay, and on Wednesday I'll be teaching a class break BRK SEC 3020, that's Advanced Firewalls, where I'm going to be talking to you about um, all the different you know, ways that you can troubleshoot ASA and FWSM platforms, uh, common issues that we see, as well as talking about some in-depth technical things like the packet processing path of the firewall, what are the show commands that we use in the TAC, and really sort of talk uh, about some of the, sort of the same things that we talk about on this podcast. Um, so that'll be Wednesday at 12.30, BRK SEC 3020, and also Thursday at noon. Um, that's that two-hour presentation, BRK SEC 3020. So we hope to see you there. If you listen to this podcast, please come by. Uh, if you spot us wearing our uh, Tax Security Podcast shirts, come by, shake your hands, and, and tell us what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you, okay? Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>